0: Well, Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. Welcome to Calvary Baptist Church. It's so good to see you today. And uh, today, just wanted to introduce to you, we have a special guest speaker, an old friend of mine for over a decade now. Uh, Kenny Wallace is with us. He uh, right now is currently the young adult pastor at the Met, and he's been also involved in the Arabic Baptist Church in town, lived in Ottawa most of his life. Uh, today he's joined by his family with him, his wife Liz and his children Jalen and Lily, and then number three that is bound to be to make their arrival any hour now. We actually weren't sure Kenny was going to make it today, so literally any hour. So Kenny, we're glad you're here. Why don't you come on and uh, welcome Kenny to our church and come share with us from the Word. Thank you, Pastor Matt. It's a delight to be here at Calvary. Am I all right? Okay, excellent. Yes, uh, it has been uh, quite a exciting morning. Did anybody else have car trouble this morning? Uh, <laughs> just to add to the mix, I couldn't start either of our cars, so that was sweet this morning, but I'm glad I woke up at around 4.30, so that's good. <laughs> um It's really good to be with you this morning, Um, I've heard so much about your church, Um, I hear that the gospel is at work and I can see and I'm thankful for what God is doing here, Um, and it's really special because it's the first Sunday of the morning, or of the year, of 2018, and uh, it's the great privilege of mine to start your year off with a message on the love of God in Christ. And I'm quite convinced that there's no more sweet or sweetening theme than to start our minds and start our year on the love of God that is found in Christ. This morning, I think this message is fitting for everyone in the room. However, you're walking into the new year, there's probably two categories of people here today there's probably the limpers, and there's probably the striders. Some of us might feel like we're limping into 2018 right out of 2017. And some of us might feel like we're clipping and we're hitting full stride into 2018. But wherever you're at and however you're walking into this year, I believe God will meet you with a message of his love that will stay your heart for the year ahead. And so let's uh, open our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And we're going to meditate and and internalize on the theme of the love of God that is found in Christ. So whether you're looking at this new year with ambition or with pain, I believe God is going to speak this morning. Now when the Bible speaks of God's love, it uses many pictures for us to take a look from different angles and different perspectives on how this God expresses His love. So it uses pictures such as a shepherd caring tenderly for his sheep. It uses a picture of a husband pursuing his wife. And it uses the picture of a father's dear love for his son. And it is on that last picture that we'll be focusing on this morning. In Romans 8:31 to 39 we see the Heavenly Father's lavish love for us all who are in Christ, In his son. In this passage, we observe that the loving Heavenly Father will hold on to us through every storm of life. And maybe you're going through a storm right now. This morning, Scripture will tell us that the love of God in Christ holds us together even when life falls apart. So please turn with me in your Bible, if you haven't already, to page 944, and we're going to look at Romans 8 31 to 39. Who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's take a moment to pray. Father in heaven, please open these truths to our eyes. May our hearts be warmed by them, and may you draw us closer into this love relationship. And if there's any here who don't yet know You as their loving Father, I pray that You would draw them, that You would work by Your Spirit in every heart. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, we come now to the climax of Romans 8, which is one of the mountain peaks of Scripture. The author of this book book is the Apostle Paul, who was radically transformed by Jesus as he was on his way to a city to harass and harm Christians. He was a deeply religious man, but his religion was the sort of religion that was cold and heartless. Maybe you know people like that, or maybe you've had the experience of being a cold religious type of person. But he was religious even to the point where he would use the name of God to harm Christians. But when Paul became a Christian, everything changed. He became deeply obsessed with Jesus and with getting to know him and love him. He went from making Christians suffer to actually suffering because he was a Christian. He can relate to all the limpers in the room because Paul himself, though we look at him as the great missionary and the great apostle, he was very familiar with weaknesses. He was very familiar with limping, at times actually beaten to the point where he was completely unable and inebriated. He endured slander and all kinds of pain for being a Christian. So as we read Romans, it's as though he's pastoring us through this book and this passage. So let's get some quick context for today's text. If you're familiar with the book of Romans, you'll know that the first Chapter chapter one eighteen all the way to three twenty is a great indictment on all of mankind. It says basically, without Christ we're all condemned sinners, found guilty before the supreme judge. Bad news. Verses uh, chapter three twenty one all the way to the end of chapter five. Paul goes on and and spirals into this great doctrine of justification, where he tells us that in Christ actually God declares us righteous. when we have faith in Jesus, not of our own doing, but when we have faith in Jesus, God actually declares us just, declares us righteous. And then Paul talks about in verses uh, chapters 6 through 8, how in Christ we grow in godliness, we are growing in our sanctification. And now we find ourselves at the end of that chapter in verses 31 through 35 and it's as though, We're overhearing a pastor in his morning devotions as he's meditating and reasoning through the gospel and applying it to himself and to his people whom he loves. So let's come to these verses expecting our hearts to be warmed this morning as though we're sitting in front of a fireplace and we're expecting to be heated up by it. In these verses we see first that the love of God is personal. Verse 31, Paul begins by saying, What then shall we say to these things? It's as though he's taking what I like to call a gospel gasp. He's kind of, wow, what do we say? What can we utter about the things that we've just heard? And I think he's referring to what he's just written in the chapter. That we are free in Christ. That we are led by the Spirit. And that we are adopted sons in God's family, just to name a few and that God is going to work everything together to make us more like Jesus as we journey towards heaven. In short, God's love will anchor us through the waves of life and bring us safe to shore. What do you say to those things? And now as if to say, what else can we say? He starts personally reasoning through that love that he's caught up with. Verse 31, he says... If, maybe better translated, since. Don't worry, we're not going to have a translation discussion right now. Uh, Since God is for us, who can be against us? That's how we can summarize the love of God. God is for us. Now that might not sound like much to you if you don't know who God is. But consider for a second who God actually is. God is the creator and sustainer of everything and everyone, as the New City Catechism says. He is the supreme judge. He is the almighty. He is the one to which everyone will pay account. And if there's anything you want this morning, you want that God to be for you. And if you know for sure that that God is for you, then who ultimately can be against you? That God is for you, and so the people and the things and the events and the circumstances that seem to be against us pale in comparison to this God who is for us. Well, this God is for the Christian. This God loves the Christian. And it's like, um, to use a quick illustration, it's like you're playing for the Golden State uh, Warriors, and you're playing a team of five-year-olds. You're going to play a game, you're going to go the four quarters, you're going to go the distance, and you know for sure it's a guarantee you're going to win that game. Because you got Steph Curry and Kevin Durant. They're not going to beat you, although, although they might try to go against you. Now let's think for a second. Paul actually says, who can be against us? Is there a person who can be against us? If you're a Christian here, you'll say, yeah, well, at least we know that Satan is against us. And that is true. Can Satan be against us? Of course he can. And he always is accusing us. But in light of who God is, Satan is nothing. Satan is, as Martin Luther used to say, God's devil. And so he is not the supreme judge. He is not going to get the final word. God is. So they can't prevail, those who are against us, whether that's Satan, or that's enemies, or that's critics, or that's harassers, or that's abusers, whoever in your life might be against you, ultimately they will not prevail if God is for you. So, if the Creator of everyone and everything is on our side, there's nothing that can come at us that will overcome us, because we overcome through the God who is for us. Well, that might sound pleasing for no, for this moment, but let's try to drill down a little deeper here for a minute. If you're familiar with the Book of Romans, you will recall in Romans 18, or sorry, in Romans 1:18 that this God has not always been for us. In fact, it says to the contrary in one eighteen, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God was against us. Now you're saying God is for us? How can this be? Now this, I believe, is the puzzle of the Gospel. And in the next verse, Paul puts this puzzle together for us. Verse 32, He, the Father, who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? God turned towards us in love by turning towards His Son in wrath instead of us. At the cross, you see that Jesus loves you. This you know before the Bible tells you so. But at the cross, you also see that the Heavenly Father loves you. We go from being at odds with God to being adopted into His family as sons. Why? Because the Father gave Him up for us all. When we trust in Jesus, our status changes completely. We we get to enjoy the blessings and the privileges of sonship that we once did not have at all. As John Owen in that great book called uh, Communion with the Triune God, he talks about this as as an important teaching and he says this is the great discovery of the Gospel. The Father as the fountain of the deity is only known as full of wrath, anger, and indignation against sin. Right? Romans 1, 18-320. Yet here in the Gospel, He is now revealed specifically as love and as full of love towards us as Christians. That's a magnificent change that has taken place. And you might be hearing the echoes of Isaiah 53 in this text in verse 32. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. At the cross, we see Jesus, the sinless Savior, dying not for his own sins. He never had one of them. He never sinned. But he was dying for ours, in our place, in our stead. I don't know what this is doing to you, but sometimes it might cause you to want to sing. Sing a song like How Deep the Father's Love for Us, How Vast Beyond All Measure. That he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure? How great the pain of searing loss, the father turns his face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. That is the great exchange, isn't it? The great exchange of the gospel. We get life, he took our death. God the Father did not spare or save His Son from judgment, but instead He gave His Son up to be judged for us all. If He didn't spare His Son whom He loves, be sure He will not spare any good thing from us. Reading these words might recall, might call to mind the, uh, another story in the Bible, the story of a father who was willing to, carry, to, to offer up his son. It's the story of Abraham and Isaac. In Genesis 22, where we read that Abraham almost slaughtered his son Isaac on the altar. But before he could sacrifice his precious son whom he loved, an angel of the Lord stepped in, stopped him, and provided a lamb to be slaughtered to spare his son. Now that scene is a prelude to the dramatic scene of the cross which took place thousands of years later where Jesus would actually be offered up as a sacrifice. But this time, there was no substitute. He was our substitute. He was the Lamb of God who was taking away the sin of the world on the cross. So he steps in place. He is not spared, but endures the wrath of God. And since God would not save His own Son from the brutality of the cross, be sure He will not withhold any good thing from His children. That is the lavish love of a father. And that is the lavish love of God the Father for the world, for you, and for me. Now, as a pastor, I think this is an important thing to understand for myself, for others, but I think... Um, John Owen saw the importance of this as well, of grasping your relationship to your Heavenly Father. Christians are oft, This is what John Owen says, Christians are often very troubled concerning how the Father thinks of them. They are well persuaded of the goodwill of the Lord Jesus. The difficulty lies in how well they are accepted by the Father. What is His heart towards them? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever prayed to God knowing that Jesus was gracious but just not quite sure if the Father was? I don't know what comes to your mind when I mention the name Father. Maybe when I mention the word, you cringe. And for that, I'm sorry. Maybe your father wasn't a good example of what a father should be. Maybe He demeaned you Maybe your father neglected you. Or maybe your father even abused you. Whatever experience you've had with your father, I'm sure it's affected your view of God the Father. But don't let your experience with your earthly father shatter hopes of drawing near to your heavenly father. Because the heavenly father does not copy earthly fathers. Instead, earthly fathers are supposed to copy and reflect our Heavenly Father to us. In God the Father, Scripture is clear, is a God of love, He is gracious, He is kind, and yes, He truly does care. How often do we think about God being stingy on compassion, or stingy on mercy? We might think that There's some resistance to His goodness for us. We think that though Jesus is kind, behind Him is a frowning Father sitting in the corner crossing His arms. No. The Father's heart is warm towards us as a Father who loves His dear children. Now, Paul has laid out plainly that God loves us and is for us. He gave His Son up for us. But not only that, God actually declares us just. He declares us righteous. Verse 33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. We, knew, we move now from the family room to the courtroom. And to the topic of justification. This idea justify introduces us to legal language. To justify is declare someone righteous or to declare someone just. When it says God justifies, that means all of God's people are declared righteous. Here we come to grips with how our guilt is acquitted by God's spectacular grace. There's no higher court than heaven though others might bring accusations about us, those accusations ultimately won't stick. Because when God, the righteous judge, the supreme judge, declares you righteous, it's settled. What God says remains on the books for good. And if he declares you righteous, and so it is. I hope your heart is starting to warm at these hope-lifting truths from Romans 8. I hope it's encouraging you for the year ahead. I pray that the Gospel is starting to minister to you, and as the Spirit moves, your hearts are starting to get encouragement. And as the Spirit reminds us of the great joys of being a child of God, let's keep meditating on the logic of the Gospel here. Let's think for a second about what we do with our guilt and shame. So, you're a Christian... You struggle with sin. Once in a while, you might even get caught red-handed in sin. Then what do you do? Do you hide it? Do you deny it? Well, no, we we go back to the Lord, don't we? We go back to the Lord when we know that we have guilt, we confess, we believe that the truth in the Scripture about us is true, and we say, Lord, we've sinned. We repent. We don't want that. We've gone astray. We need you. But there's sometimes guilt that just won't stop harassing us. And it's charging us over and over before we go to sleep at night. What do we do when we feel that guilt? Something maybe way in the back of our mind, way in history, where we broke God's law and we feel terrible about it. Where do we go when we feel convicted of our sin? We go to verse 34, I believe. And in verse 34, Paul is reasoning through the gospel. He says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You can almost hear faith rising, can't you? Here's the Gospel in a verse. Christ lived, Christ died, Christ was raised, and Christ is alive and interceding for us. He's petitioning for us to God. And since this is so, there is no railing accusation against us that can ultimately stick. The guilt is washed away in the Gospel of Grace as God does a deep work in our heart as we say verses like this, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. That's faith in action. That's faith at work. The shame is silenced as we saturate ourselves in the good news about what God says about us. Because there are times where we just don't feel that these verses are true, but they still are true. So where do we go when we feel convicted? We feel Satan and other people are bringing our sins before us. They're throwing them in our face. Instead of denying and hiding them, we confess and we believe the truth about ourselves that God says in His Word. We take a text like this and we start meditating on it. We put it uh, somewhere visual, whether it's on a mirror or it's right above the sink at home, and we start meditating and musing and 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 thinking through these kind of verses and letting it m- work in our hearts and melt our hearts. And that is how we are wooed back to God. When we soak in a text like this, we we are growing closer in love with God through our struggles. And we're growing to be more like Jesus in the process. So who is going to cl- to declare you guilty? Who is going to declare me guilty if God says I'm righteous? No one's accusation will stay. Listen to Martin Luther as he instructs people when they're working through guilt. He says this, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? It's like modern day, what? <laughs> For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. What of it? When Satan throws those sins in your face, you go back to Jesus. And you remind him, it is paid. As we heard, it is paid in full. Another song, a little older song. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruin sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Paul's last two questions ask whether or not anything can separate us from Christ's love. And if you're not convinced of that yet, then let's keep moving through this passage. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Can anything I do cut off Christ's love from me? Can stress or troubles or trials or poverty or danger, or even persecution shut the door of God's love on me? Will your diagnosis, or the loss of your job, or the threats, or the abuse of others separate you from the love of Christ? In verse 37, he answers with a resounding no. Nothing, no nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. A year ago my wife uh, and I went through one of the most painful and traumatic periods of our life. We've been married for five years now and uh, we adopted our son Jalen when he was 21 months and our daughter Lily's two right now. Um, but we had last January, on the 10th of January, a miscarriage. And uh, the grief and the sorrow that we experienced was actually quite unbearable. and a little bit unbelievable as we're working with the doctor and as the doctor's working on Liz. We were expecting this baby and anticipating this baby in the warmth of the summer, and we lost her on a dark, cold winter night. And we still grieve that loss today. And maybe you're in a season with similar grief. And you don't know quite what to do with your feelings right now. You feel overwhelmed by the pain and you feel trapped in the dark and the cold night of your soul. You may be trying to avoid the pain, but at the end of the day, you know it's still there and it's still knocking. Well, Romans 8 shows us that God doesn't shelter us from struggles, but He becomes our shelter in our struggles. And during the deep grief of losing our baby, we experienced the deep love of God for us. And since then, Romans 8 has become my chapter to meditate on. And the love that God had held us together when life definitely felt like it was falling apart. And it couldn't get any tougher. And though the pain was great, His love never left us we discovered that God doesn't promise to rescue us from the presence of trouble, but He promises to be present with us in our trouble. And if we live long enough, even as Christians, we will endure suffering. It is just going to happen. It is the way of the world. We live in a world that is just not yet set right. It has fallen And it's dark. And it's cold. (laughs) But this is the paradox of the Christian life, isn't it? How amazing it is to see the twin truths of great love of God in Romans 8 and deep pain and deep sorrow and deep trouble. All side by side. It's the paradox of the Christian life. I was an intern at the Met several years back when... Pastor Rick Reed was there and he used to often start us off in prayer in the morning and one of the times that he started us off in prayer, he said, it's as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. This is Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.10. He said ministry was as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And that's life, isn't it? There's always sorrow and there's always opportunity and reason to rejoice. Well, I hope this text is pastoring to you and comforting you wherever you're at today. In this next, in these next verses, we see that the love of God in Christ is for day-to-day living. It's extremely practical. Here, Hear this, Christian. You're not going to es- escape any of the trials. or You're not going to escape trials just because you're a Christian. You're not going to escape suffering just because you're a believer. Trials are sure to come. And when they do come, you will find out as verses 36 to 39 says that the love of God is extremely practical. I, I don't know what you think, but when I'm reading through verses 31 through 35, I, I wonder why 36 is there sometimes. Listen to this. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Why is that there, Paul? Oh, what, what were you thinking? Well, he's very familiar with struggle, isn't he? This passage is so true to life, it humbles us because it shows us that Romans 8 is not simply for theologians, but it is practical and is for everyone. He's not writing Romans to seminary students, but he's writing Romans to a real church that will face real persecution in Rome in the first century. We often think, The evidence of God's love is seen in riches and comfort and ease and big houses and lots of cars and this and that. But I think Paul would challenge that. I think he would say that God's love is not evidenced in ease and comfort and riches. But it is evidenced by walking with God through all our struggles. And in fact, he himself knew struggling greatly because at the end of his life, he would actually be regarded as a sheep to be slaughtered. This is deeply personal because tradition tells us that the Roman emperor Nero had his head chopped off at the end of his life. So he would be led as a sheep to be slaughtered. The love of God held him together through life's darkest storms. And Paul conquered through the God who loved him As verse 37 says, No, in all these things, yes, even though we might be led to be slaughtered, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. None of the troubles listed previously will triumph over us. From 35, none of those will triumph over us because in all the trials we will conquer through God who loves us and gave His Son for us. We conquer through Jesus who laid down His life for us. We conquer not by willpower or by yoga classes, but we conquer by clinging to our God who holds us close in the times of trouble. Now if these verses haven't given you assurance of God's love yet, Paul finishes this chapter by stating what he is so convinced of. He is assured of. He is persuaded of it. He shows us that he's personally persuaded of the love of God for him. These are probably some of my favorite verses ever. So let's read verses 38 to 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's nothing at all that can, be, can separate us from the love of God. That's stated pretty clearly there. He goes off and he says, uh, nothing, no, nothing can separate us. Not the bad angels, not the good angels, not the present circumstances or the future uncertainties, not the powers that be, nothing. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. For Christians, nothing good, for nothing bad can shut off the love of God for us. And how can this be? How can this be? And Paul closes this passage with the key that unlocks the love of God for us. This whole passage swings open on the hinges of that little phrase, In Christ Jesus our Lord. You cannot understand the love of God without this little phrase, Christian. This little phrase describes believers' union with Christ. We are united with Jesus as a wife is united with her husband. We are the bride of Christ and there is no separating this relationship. In fact, this little phrase bookends Romans 8, doesn't it? Romans 8.1, who knows it? There is therefore now for those who are in Christ Jesus, that's right. And so this idea bookends this great chapter and it's seen throughout a lot of Paul's writings. The most common name for Christians in the Bible is not disciples or followers of Christ, but it is that we are people in Christ. So how can we be so sure that God is for us? Because we who believe in Christ are actually in Christ. And if the Father loves His Son, he loves everyone who is in the Son, just like a body member, or like a body member to the body, right? A husband and a wife united. So He loves us because we are in His Son, and He has deep love for His Son. So who can help? Uh, who can successfully be against us if we are in Christ? You know that you know the answer now. <laughs> Who can make an accusation stick if God says we are in Christ and we are justified? Who can condemn us if God says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ? If Christ died and Christ rose for us, paying our debt of sin, and who can separate us from His love? No one. Nothing. We conquer all these troubles and all the trials through Christ who strengthens us. Now how convinced are you today that God is for you? How convinced are you today that the love of God in Christ will truly hold you together when life falls apart? Christians, since you are in Christ, nothing will separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Nothing. Not even death. Let these truths steady your heart today, whether you're striding or limping into 2018. Let us together taste and see that the love of the Father is really good. And if you're not yet in Christ and you're here and you're not yet a Christian, don't miss the opportunity. Come to the Father by trusting in His Son Jesus. I'll be here afterwards. Pastor Matt will be here afterwards as well to talk. Come to the Father if you do not yet know forgiveness of sins in Christ. You can have all forgiveness of, uh, uh, forgiveness of all your sins in Christ. Come to the Father and know the freedom of His amazing love today as you experience how deep the Father's love is for you in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. It has to make us change and melt because it is so precious, Lord. We want it to do more than it's doing in our life right now. We want your spirit to blow afresh in our hearts and we want your word to impact us more deeply. Let us by faith be strengthened by your love. And I pray that if there's anyone here who needs Christ, Lord, that your Spirit will work in their hearts. Open their hearts, Lord, we pray. And may we taste and see that your love is good. In Jesus' name.